Well, good morning, High Point. I want to thank you for joining us today, those who are here in our sanctuary and those who are joining us online. I'm glad that you're with us, and, and I'm glad to be here with you. Before I get started, I've got a couple announcements. One that is required by our bylaws that I must verbally present to you. On Sunday, March the 28th, we are going to hold our annual church business meeting. It'll be at 5 p.m., so I, right here in the sanctuary, so I'd appreciate if you would put that on your calendar. If you are a member of this church, we need you to attend this meeting so that we can vote on church business and have a quorum in order to be able to do that. Like last year, because of the COVID-19 issue, we are going to also offer drive-up voting for our members who have health concerns about gathering together with uh, others. Uh, there will be an email going out to you if we have your email address or a letter if we don't explaining uh, how the details of that are all going to work. And uh, while talking about the meeting, it's important for me to also identify the four individuals who are running to serve on our church board. We have their photos up on the screen behind me. Uh, Wes Miller, who currently serves on our board as our, as our secretary. Uh, Rich Davidson, uh, served formerly on the board, has been our treasurer for many years, is running again this year. Uh, Ed Hogan. Uh, that's the guy in the middle, and uh, Ed is uh, running for his first time, and then we have Dan Dawson, who is also running. We have two positions to fill, so the two top vote-getters vote will be serving on our board. But I want to ask you to make this a matter of prayer. If you're a member and you are going to vote, please don't just vote uh, because you think it's the right thing to do. I want you to pray about it. We want to have people on our board who are progressive thinkers, who, who can think outside the box and look at ministry in different ways where we can be more effective uh, here in this community. And that's what we're seeking. And I hope that you seek God in prayer on that one. One other announcement I'd like to make, Pastor Ezzy down at New Life Assembly in Corning has invited us to uh, a free concert tomorrow night with Seventh Day Slumber. It'll be at six o'clock. It's gonna be out in their parking lot. He said, you're invited to come, bring a chair, and uh, worship. So that's going to happen tomorrow night down in Corning. Uh, any and all are welcome to come. Fortunately, I won't be joining you because we have a board meeting tomorrow. Uh, so I uh, won't be going, but you are welcome to go and just bring a lawn chair and enjoy the concert and being with God's people. Now, if you're glad I'm done with the announcements, you can say amen because I certainly am. I want you to turn your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Mark, chapter 13. I am excited this morning because we're beginning a, a new series, which is a study on the last days. The term for such a study is what theologians refer to as eschatology, and therefore, for the next several weeks, I am going to be an eschatologist. Pretty impressive, huh? Well, if you recall the last time that I was with you, I shared a very heartfelt message called Ball of Confusion. In that message, I talked at length about the, the severe moral decline going on in our nation and in our world and, and all the craziness that is going on and abounds everywhere and how that everything that is happening is happening so it leads us to the last days, to the rapture of the church and to Jesus' second coming. So I thought this would be an excellent time to look at what the scriptures have to say regarding the end days. Because honestly, I believe that we are living in the last days and what we're going to study during this, this series can happen at any moment. And this is a very interesting subject because anytime that, 
you talk or you study about the last days, you will generally get a couple different kinds of responses. Some people are very interested in what is going to happen according to the scriptures because they believe it is a very timely message for our day. And then you have a segment of people who, who doubt and who deny this. They are like what Second Peter 3 verses 3 through 4 states, where it says, first of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is the coming he promised? Of course, they are referencing Jesus' words here. My response to all of that would be that in the Old Testament, there are over 330 distinct prophecies regarding the coming of Jesus. One-third of them had to do with his first coming, while two-thirds have to do with his second coming. So if there were a hundred of them that had to do with his first coming, and he in fact came, and there are 200 having to do with his second coming, I would say with the utmost certainty that he is coming again. And therefore, we must be ready. Jesus was crystal clear about this when he walked this earth, that he would return again. In Matthew 24, verse 3, the disciples even asked this question, tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age. Think about it. If Jesus wasn't coming back again, he would have simply answered that question by saying, what do you mean? I'm already here. But he went on to say in Matthew 24, 30, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He mentions it again in Matthew 24, 37, and again in Matthew 24, 42. He is coming, ladies and gentlemen. Jesus was very clear about this, and he wanted to make sure that all of his followers knew it as well. So you have people who are interested in this knowledge, and you have other people who doubt this knowledge, but there are some who never even want to talk about this. And the reason they don't want to talk about it is because they've been confused over the years with inconsistent information that they've heard. I mean, let's be honest with one another. There is some ambiguity in the scriptures. But even more importantly, there are differences in how we perceive the scriptures. So what happens is rather than talk about those things that we know with great certainty, we don't talk about it at all because we fear that we might get the other parts wrong. And I've got to confess to you this morning that doing a series like this is hard on me. <laughs> Why is it hard on you? Thank you for asking. Because all of you have your favorite TV evangelist that you watch, and he or she has done a series on this, and, and they have, you are convinced that everything that they told you was spot on. Because after all, they have a TV program, and they're famous. And so if I, as a pastor from a small town in Red Bluff, California, share my insights, well, there might be some differences in our insights, and therefore you can see the potential problems that come from this. But I want to preface everything that I'm going to say as we go into this series by saying this. No one understands or has completely discerned all of the end time prophecies and scriptures. No one. I don't believe that this side of eternity, we will ever fully understand everything that's written in the scriptures. So much of it is how we perceive what we've read based upon historical, 
spiritual, and even intellectual factors. But putting all of that aside, it's essential that we not simply ignore the end time prophecies and events, especially since I believe that we are living in the end times right now. So today we are going to look at the book of Mark, chapter 13, verses 1 through 13. You can go ahead and turn there. This is an introductory portion on this subject. If you haven't already started turning there, you can go ahead and turn there while I continue to talk. What we are going to read considers or covers the time of Christ up until today in the 21st century. But then later on, we will turn to things that will happen in the future. So I want you to allow me to set the scene regarding what we're going to read here. Jesus has been teaching in the temple in Jerusalem, and it's Wednesday during the last week of his earthly ministry. By the time you get to Mark chapter 13, it is in the evening on that Wednesday, and keep in mind, on Friday, Jesus will be crucified. And as we speak of the temple, the temple in Jerusalem has been rebuilt it has been remodeled by, of all people, Herod the Great. It was, a, it was massive in size, and right in the middle of it, of this entire structure, was the temple proper. It was a magnificent piece of architecture built in gleaming white chiseled limestone, with some of that limestone having been gilded with gold. It was one of the most incredible structures of its time, and they had worked on it for over 50 years. So you can imagine its grandeur. So let's read together from Mark's gospel. I'll be reading today from the English Standard Version. Mark chapter 13, verse 1. If you don't have your Bible, all these scriptures will be on the screen behind me. And as he, Jesus, came out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. So Jesus is coming out of the temple. They're walking along near the, the massive carved stones at the base of the temple. They continue to walk in Jerusalem along to the Kidron Valley, and now they're up on the elevations of the Mount of Olives, and they're looking straight across the valley right at the beautiful temple. And while doing so, verses 2 through 4 document the conversation that he is having with his disciples. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? His disciples want to know the signs. When is the temple going to be destroyed? When is Jesus going to come again? And when will the end of the age occur, the time when all of history culminates? And this is what we're going to be studying. Now, first, Jesus talks about the destruction of the temple. And he is predicting something that would actually happen within 40 years of him actually speaking these words. Because in 70 AD, the Jewish people revolted against Rome, specifically against the oppressive rule of government, against all of the idolatry that was going on in the land, and of course the unfair back-breaking taxes that they were forced to pay Rome. And so as anyone would expect, in response to this uprising, the Roman armies did what they did best. 
they invaded Jerusalem, and while doing so, they brought down the beautiful temple that they had just reconstructed. They completely decimated it to make a point. Just as Jesus had prophesied, the stones were literally thrown down, and all that was left intact was the foundations and the lower portions of the walls. And even today, if you go to Jerusalem, you will see the foundations of the numerous rows of the stacked stones that made up the base and the lower parts of the temple, as well as the wailing wall, which I think everybody has heard of. So Jesus said, there is going to come a day when this temple will be torn down, and it happened within 40 years. But this is just a warm-up pitch because he continues on, and that's where we're going. In verses five and six, and Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. In these end times, there will be people and there will be groups who will come and they will say that they have a new revelation from God and you see this in many of the cults in our world today. Mormonism is, is an example of this. They have added an entirely New Testament, if you will, to the scriptures through the writings of a man named Joseph Smith. And they offer this to the public despite the fact that the Holy Bible ends with a stern warning that no one is to add to or to take away from the scriptures. In addition, there has been and will continue to be people and others who say that they are Christ incarnate, like the Reverend Sun Young Moon and his Moonies, who believe that in fact he was Christ who had returned. Unfortunately for them, he died in 2012. There's also been people within Christianity who have set definitive dates as to when Christ would return. Edgar C. Wisenot was a former NASA engineer and a Bible student who predicted the rapture would happen in 1998. He wrote a book titled, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Happen in 1998. Well, when that didn't happen, he wrote 89 reasons why the rapture will happen in 1989. And when that didn't happen, he wrote another in 93 and 94 and in 97. And finally, he said, I, I don't really think I have a clue what I'm talking about. Well, not an exact quote, but I think you probably get the, the idea. More recently, Harold Camping, an American Christian radio broadcaster and evangelist, predicted that Christ would return in 2011, twice, once in May. And when that didn't happen, he predicted it would happen later on in the fall. Well, later on, Mr. Camping repented that he had tried to set a date for Jesus' return. Jesus is simply saying to us today, be careful because there will be people who will offer false information and bring about much confusion regarding my second coming. So don't allow yourself to get caught up in anything that is not scriptural and always remember what is written in Matthew 24, 36. But about that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And you know what's interesting is even other world religions speak of an end of the age. And believe it or not, in Islam's version, 
It even includes Jesus. I don't know if you know that or not. The Hadid talks about Jesus coming back where he will grab onto the wings of two angels and he will descend to the earth. Now you need to understand that the Muslims do not believe Jesus is God. They don't believe that Jesus is God's son and they do not believe that he was crucified. Instead, they believe that he was caught up into heaven like Elijah was. So according to the Hadid, Jesus will descend near Damascus where he will meet with the Mahdi. The Mahdi is a messianic deliverer who will fill the earth with justice and equity. He will restore the true religion of Islam and usher in a short golden age before the end of the world. Well, this Mahdi will reach out to Jesus and he will say, please pray, Jesus. But Jesus, in turn, will reach out to the Mahdi and say, no, I want you to pray as a way symbolically of saying, no, you're above me and I'm showing submission to Islam. Then after they pray, they believe Jesus will destroy the Antichrist. And after he does that, Jesus will travel back down to Mecca where he will salute the grave of the Muslim prophet Muhammad and Muhammad will salute Jesus from his grave and then Jesus will go throughout the whole earth and it's written that he will destroy crosses. What does that mean? It means that he will destroy the Christian church, his bride. He will eradicate the tax that Muslims are allowed to charge non-Muslims when they've conquered a region where Christians and Jews are living. It was a tax that they had to pay that allowed them to live in a Muslim city or a Muslim area, and they believe that Jesus will destroy that tax. And the significance of this is simple, that Jesus will then say to everyone, you are no longer a Christian, you are no longer a Jew, you must now submit to Islam or die. Then they say Jesus will marry a woman, a woman and he will produce offspring and he will die at a very ripe old age. That, ladies and gentlemen, is an abbreviated version of the end of times from the Muslim Hadith. Jesus is saying to us, do not be confused. Don't let anyone confuse you. Don't let anyone deceive you. Don't believe it when someone comes to you and says, I am the Christ. Now there is coming a day where there will be an antichrist that I had mentioned earlier. He will be the devil's version of Christ and he will in fact deceive the entire world. But Jesus is warning us as believers today not to get caught up in all of the erroneous predictions and not to follow anyone who claims to be Christ. Well, Jesus continues in Mark chapter 13, verses 7, and the first part of verse 8. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Throughout history, whenever there has been a war, especially when it's been a big war, people have often assumed it was going to be the end of the age. But Jesus is saying, you're gonna hear about wars, you're gonna hear all the saber rattling going on in the world, nations will rise against other nations, and as a result of that, people are going to die. In World War I, 20 million people died, and many people thought the world was going to end at that time. And then only 20 years later, World War II erupted, taking the lives of over 70 million people. Think of that, 70 million lives. In fact, 
Since 1985, an average of 500,000 people have died each year due to various wars and various conflicts going on in our world. When you trace history from the time of Christ, you will see that the frequency of wars has increased exponentially. In the thousand years after Christ, there were 50 wars. The next 500 years, there were 100 wars. The next 300 years, there were 250 wars. While in the last 200 years, there have been 500 various wars and conflicts. So peace throughout history to the human race has been hard to find. I'm reminded of a statement I once heard. Peace is that moment in time when the nations are simply reloading. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. Wars will escalate. Then in Mark 13, verse 8, the second half of that verse says this. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. Geologists tell us that there are 500,000 earthquakes every year that are scientifically measured and studied. 100,000 of those earthquakes we are completely unaware of because we just don't feel them. But in spite of that, we are living on very shaky ground. Why? Because there is an increase in the frequency of the earthquakes and the, the diversity of the areas in which they are happening. It's not just the typical hotspots anymore. And, and just to prove this point, Two days ago on Friday, I don't know if you read it or saw it on the news, there was an earthquake on the border of Oklahoma and Kansas that measured 4.2 on the Richter scale. You don't hear of too many volcano or, uh, uh, eruption or earthquakes excuse me, going on in that part of the world. Jesus also says that there will be famines. Did you know that there have been over 2,000 famines recorded in human history since 440 B.C.? And though we tend to think famines are things that happen in, in third world countries and in places unlike America where we have all of our technology and, and all of our equipment, a full-blown nationwide drought could quickly bring famine upon our nation and wreak havoc. But there are other things that could wreak havoc as well. And here is what is so interesting to me about deciphering the scriptures, especially when you start to look at the book of Revelation. The things that are described in the, in the Bible come from the perspective of men who lived thousands of years ago and who understood things through their mind's eye. It's coming from a perspective that lacks the knowledge of the technology that we have today. So when Jesus warns his disciples of famines, in their minds, they're automatically thinking no rain, no crops, no food, people will die. But Jesus, on the other hand, is acutely aware of the many ways that famine could happen in our nation and in our world in these modern days in which we live. And Jesus is saying that these things will happen with greater frequency. And understand, again, it doesn't have to always come through nature. It could be brought about artificially in a variety of ways. Here's a few artificial ways that famine could be triggered in the United States. And they are all, I might add, real concerns with the Department of Homeland Security. If another nation were to somehow send a nuclear missile our way that we could not intercept, that would be problematic. Or if someone was able to smuggle a dirty bomb 
and detonate it in a, in a large major, major metropolitan area of the United States, either of those things could quickly create a famine that could be devastating. But the one thing that really keeps our military leaders on the edge of their seat is this. If a terrorist organization or a nation, uh, organization or a nation like the likes of North Korea or Iran could detonate a nuclear device in the atmosphere above the United States of America, it would set off an EMP. That's an electromagnetic pulse, you've seen it in movies before, that could permanently take out every electrical device in our country. That would mean that your smartphone would no longer be smart. Your car would not run. Airplanes that would be in the air at that time would crash, and no other airplanes or helicopters would get off the ground. You would have no radio. You would have no television. Your appliances would not work. So you could not refrigerate your food, you could not freeze your food. You wouldn't have a working pump for those of you who have wells to bring the water up from your well. If you have city water, the city is not going to have power to send water to you or to remove your sewage through their system. There would be no transportation. Therefore, there would be no distribution of food to the grocery stores. And even if you could get to a grocery store, the, bare, the, the walls would be bare within an hour once people found out this news. I mean, let's not forget how hard it was to find a roll of toilet paper when the stay-at-home orders hit just about a year ago. If you connect the dots, you will begin to understand the severity of what I'm talking about. Millions upon millions of people could die in short order. Well, Jesus is warning us to keep our eyes open because all of these things are the signs of the end of the age. In fact, at the end of verse 8, he says this, Mark 13, 8. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. Every woman and every husband whose wife has given birth to their children knows that when a woman goes into labor, it begins with birth pains. It starts with contractions that at first are more mild and farther apart, but as the baby gets closer to being born, those contractions can become horribly painful and much more frequent. So Jesus is saying that disasters will be just like that. They will continue to increase. But now I want to take the technology and the terrorist threat out of all of this. What other ways could famine occur? Well, famine could be, could be triggered by natural disaster through tornadoes or hurricanes or a volcanic eruption. This happened back in 1815, but you don't hear it talked about much in our day and age. The eruption of Mount Tambora in Indonesia was the most powerful volcanic eruption recorded in human history. The eruption ejected millions of tons of material into the atmosphere, causing a global climate anomaly. In the spring and in the summer of 1815, there was a persistent dry fog that was observed in the northeastern United States. The fog actually reddened the skies and it dimmed the sunlight, while neither the wind that came nor any rainfall that came was able to disperse the fog. And it was identified as sulfate aerosol veil 
in the stratosphere. In the summer of 1816, countries in the northern hemisphere suffered extreme weather conditions, and it was dubbed the year without a summer. Average global temperatures decreased and caused significant agricultural problems around the globe. The upper elevations of New Hampshire, Maine, Vermont, and northern New York, temperatures fell below freezing every day in the month of May. And in June of 1816, frosts were reported in those areas as well as snow falling even in the month of June. These, these conditions occurred and lasted for approximately three months, and it ruined most of the agricultural crops in North America. Something like this could happen at any time, and again, Jesus is simply saying that disasters can and will happen. I want to take a look at Luke's account of this because there's, there's something else added in here. Luke 2.11 says this, there will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences and there will be terrors and great signs from the heavens. Another translation of that last sentence says there will be strange and terrifying things coming from the sky. Now, you don't have to be a NASA scientist to understand what this means because we've all heard of asteroids in the skies and some have even hit the earth. Where I came from in Arizona, there's a large crater called Meteor Crater where one hit thousands of years ago. It's a huge hole in the ground where a meteor hit. Not all that long ago, one hit Russia in February of 2013. The, the asteroid itself measured about 66 feet across. And I want you to listen to what a meteor of that size could do if it hit the earth in a heavily populated area. It would kill every living thing outdoors within a radius of 30 miles. It would ignite on fire the clothing of anyone within 60 miles of it. And it would devastate anything within 700 square miles. And you might find it interesting to know, ladies and gentlemen, that there are currently six asteroids that size and larger floating around in the Earth's orbit. Where else can you come on a Sunday and get more terrified than when you come and listen to me? I'm just doing my job. All of this to say, ladies and gentlemen, we live in a very dangerous world, and I don't think that surprises any of us. But Jesus continues on in Mark 13, 9. He says, but be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And I'm going to come back to that verse a little bit later on in this message. Verse 12. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. I want to stop here for a second and talk about that last verse. Because the last time that we were together... I suggested that our focus as a church and as fellow Christians has to be about people. That we are called to be ministers of reconciliation by working towards seeing the lost in our world get saved. And as a pastor, whenever I talk to people about soul winning, there is this real fear of not knowing what to say to express the hope 
that we have in Christ Jesus to another person. Well, this scripture says exactly what I have said numerous times from this pulpit. When a door opens, when you receive an opportunity to share your faith, the Holy Spirit will give you the words to speak. You will hear things come out of your mouth that you didn't even know that you knew, and, and, and you will say things that you didn't think would ever cross your lips. You see, during those moments, the Holy Spirit will speak through you. He will provide you with the right things to say every single time. You just need to be obedient to those opportunities that arise. He will provide you with the words every time. And, and he will do so both for the furtherance of the gospel as you are sharing your faith with someone else and also in this case that Mark writes about in the defense of the gospel. Well, then I want you to look at verse 12. And brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child. And children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. What he's making clear here is that persecution will come. I told you two weeks ago that I believe not only will persecution be coming in greater waves to us in America, but a loss of some of our freedoms and even suffering. And I said, don't always fear suffering because the Bible says we grow through suffering, but we like to avoid it like the plague. And you know, as we talk about persecution and suffering, I think we tend to look at the years of the great Roman Empire as the greatest time of persecution against Christians. I mean, in those days, Christians were fed to the lions. They were put on posts and lit on fire, and they put them up like torches to light their garden parties, if you can believe that. In those days, horrific things were done to those who were people of Christian faith. But you know something? More Christians have been martyred in the last two centuries than all of the previous centuries combined. I'm talking about the 20th century and now the 21 years that we are into this 21st century. There is, con there is currently an enormous amount of persecution that is going on in our world today whereby 100,000 Christians are martyred every year. Wrap your mind around this. 273 people every day are killed for the cause of Jesus Christ. 11 people every hour, one person every five minutes is killed for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't know if you know this or not, but 80% of all violent acts against the religions of the world happen to Christians. So understand, persecution is coming, and Jesus is telling us that it will increase, and it will be more than someone just making fun of what you believe in. And it will come from government, and it will come from family members, and it will come from corporations who do not believe like you do, and it will come from work associates. It will be driven by social media and organizations who will come up against the principles of Christianity and against those who believe in those principles. And so that leads me to what a lot of people ask that goes something like this. Well, in light of all this, Pastor David, why doesn't Jesus just come? That's a good question. Why doesn't 
Jesus, just come. The scriptural answer for that is found in 2 Peter 3.9. It says, the Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but he wants everyone to repent. Why hasn't Jesus come yet? Because there are people in this room and there are people who are watching this message online who have yet to receive salvation. There are family members and people that you work with who are yet to be saved. There are people who have heard the gospel and they have not yet put their trust and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is waiting for you. He is being patient for you and I and for those that we know and that we love and that we care about to lead them into a faith relationship with Jesus. There are people out there who are not right with God and he is waiting for you to get serious and to get right with him. But, I, but having stated even all of that, Look at 2 Peter 3.10. The first half of that verse says, but the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. He's coming, ladies and gentlemen. Just because we don't know the exact time doesn't mean he's not coming. The reason he has not come yet is because of his amazing love and his grace that he shows towards us and towards those who are yet to be found. And because he hasn't come, do you understand that we are closer to his coming than any generation who has ever walked the face of this earth? The word says that he's coming. Jesus himself says he's coming. The signs of the time says he is coming. So make no mistake about it, ladies and gentlemen. Jesus is coming again. I told you I'd get back to Mark 13.10. I want you to look at what it says again. It was that statement at the end of that that. Uh, little paragraph that said, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. This is a major sign that must be fulfilled before Jesus returns. The gospel must be preached to the whole earth, and then Jesus will come. So I think the million-dollar question is, is the gospel, in fact, going out everywhere? And my answer would be, yes, in, in a sense it is whether through missionaries or whether through television or satellite or internet or even now they're carrying solar-powered devices into desolate areas where they're sharing the gospel. The gospel is reaching more people today than ever before in human history and we're even getting smarter and more sophisticated in how we're doing it. The good folks at Wycliffe Bible Translators are doing an incredible job at translating the Bible into all the different languages of the world, including the different dialects of those, those languages all over the world. Wycliffe is affiliated with a group of business leaders who are using the resources that God has blessed them with to do his work. They call themselves the Seed Company. And through private funding, they are discovering people groups who have yet to hear the gospel, and furthermore, they are quickly translating the scriptures into their languages and into their dialect. They believe that they will have the Bible translated into every language on the face of this earth by 2025. Now, do not misunderstand that statement. That does not mean that Jesus will not come until 2025. Because as always, there are boots on the ground, as they say. 
We have missionaries who are working diligently all over the world and never forget that the Holy Spirit continually works to draw people to the truth of Jesus Christ. The gospel right now is going out to all corners of the world. They are preaching the good news everywhere and some are doing it at the cost of their own lives. But it's happening. And what that means is that at any time, Jesus could come. And I don't know about you, but as for me, I say, come now, Lord Jesus, come now. What I'm trying to convey to all of you this morning is simple. We are living in the last times, in the, in the end times. And so that leaves two big questions for every one of us. What are you doing personally to share the good news with those who you know who have not yet accepted Christ? And the second question, which is the most important one for you, and that is, are you yourself ready? Scott, will you come forward and help me to close this down? You see, the scriptures, the Bible, hold detailed prophecies and warnings regarding the end times. It helps us to, to see what is going on in our world and to understand it. But ultimately, the scriptures have been written for everyone to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and to ultimately receive salvation. There is nothing more important that any church or any individual person could do than to lead someone into a faith relationship with Jesus Christ. Because it is there that they will find forgiveness of sin and they will find eternal life. So I would propose to you this morning, as I did the last time that we, are together, we were together, that we as a church and as people individually must be about our Father's business. And that business begins by being certain that we ourselves are living in a way that brings honor to the sacrifice that Christ made for us. Because you see, God uses that as a vehicle whereby people see that we live in such a different way that it, it rises up their curiosity and they finally eventually will come to you and say, what is it about you that is so different? That's how my wife found Christ because she worked with a woman who was different. And Lisa said, what is it about you? You don't get caught up in all of this stuff that goes on here in the workplace. You are, you are so peaceful, kind, you're loving. You're unlike anybody that we work with here. And thus open the door. And thus my wife received salvation through the testimony of how a person lived. It opens doors for you to have discussions with others. You don't even need to open the door. They open it themselves and it's right there for you to share God's goodness with them so that they can receive salvation. And if you're here this morning or you're watching us online, I want to give everyone an opportunity to receive this salvation that only Jesus Christ can offer. The Bible says in order to be saved, you must believe and you must confess. You must believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he is the only way to God the Father. You have to believe that he came to this earth as he did in his first coming. He walked and talked among us. He showed us how to live. He showed us the love of Christ. And he died, an innocent man died a horrific death on the cross. And the shedding of his blood 
is what atones or it's what covers, it's what washes our sin away. He died so that we wouldn't have to. That was the purpose of Christ's coming. But he didn't stay dead. He rose three days later with resurrection power and that same power, the Spirit of God indwells you when you ask God or Jesus into your heart. That's what being saved is. The belief part is just understanding that. The confession part is speaking words like that and saying, Jesus, I want you to be the Lord of my life. Forgive me of my sin. Become the Lord of my life. Make a new creation out of me. Give me a fresh start. If you pray a prayer like that with sincerity in your heart, he will cleanse you of all unrighteousness and you will become, as the word says, a new creation. And then you can be ready for that time that, G that God chooses to tell Jesus, now it's time. Bring my children home. And for those of you who are here today or watching online that are already saved, we're gonna pray in just a minute. And I want you to pray that God would give you a real desire to see those that you know and that you love and that you work with and that you care about and that you rub elbows with during the day come into a redeeming relationship with Christ. Those who have yet to find Christ, that God would give you a desire in your heart to see them get saved. Because understand something. This news of Jesus coming again is the greatest news that we as followers of Christ could ever receive. It is the culmination of everything that we've lived for. It is the culmination of the promise of the gospel that when Christ comes, we go home. And we spend eternity in the presence of God. But do you understand for your brothers and your sisters and your nieces and your nephews and your cousins and your aunts and your uncles and your work associates and your partner that you work with at work who do not know Jesus, that the, the news of Jesus returning is the most horrific news that they could ever receive. One can only imagine the angst in the pit of your gut at that moment when Jesus chooses to take us home and all of a sudden millions of people are gone off of the face of this earth and I'm sure CNN will spin it in some way that everybody will say, oh yeah, well, that's a normal anomaly, it just happened. Solar thing happened and millions of people just disappeared. And they'll try to put a patch on it and they'll try to make people feel better about it. But those who have heard just a smidgen of the gospel will know deep in their heart what had just happened. And the angst in their gut will be, my God, I missed my opportunity. When all Jesus is asking is that we submit our will to him, that we allow him to have lordship over our life. It is such a simple thing to do. And yet, because of our human pride, we kick and we scream and we fight and we resist. And for the life of me, I don't know why that is. I guess I do because before I was saved, I was just like that. But at some point, ladies and gentlemen, the Holy Spirit comes along and the light bulb comes on in your head and you make that commitment and your life will never be the same. Can you see how high the stakes are in what I'm talking about? We're talking about life in the presence of God or eternity in hell separated from God. I don't know about you, but I will always choose number one over number two.
So will you pray? Will you have the courage to pray that God would develop within you a hyper sense of the reality of those around you that are lost? And that when you see them in the condition that they are, that rather than just ignoring it, that you would grieve in your heart over them and you would work at finding a way to open up the conversation. The worst thing that they can tell you is, no, I'm not interested in that, but you've been obedient to Christ. That's what he's asked you to do. But when they say, this is available to me, why hasn't anybody told me this? Why haven't I understood this? And you lead them in a prayer and they find Christ. Can I tell you something? It will be the greatest sense of fulfillment of anything you've ever done. And you won't want to just stop there. You'll want to talk to other people about it. It's an incredible thing to know that you played a part in snatching someone from eternity away from the presence of God. So I'm going to close in prayer. If anyone would like to come to this altar, this altar is open. If you should want to come down here and pray, we haven't been doing that much during COVID for the obvious reasons, but I'm tired of that. And so this altar is open should you want to come down. But I'd like to ask you to stand to your feet anyway. And I want to close in prayer. And I don't want you to just listen to my prayer. I want you to pray in your own words what it is that you need from God this morning. Can we pray together? Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that we know that you have a plan. And even though we see the things going on in our, in our world and in our country, and we don't always understand it, and sometimes it builds fear in our hearts and we worry, Lord, that fear was never intended for us. That fear was intended for those who do not know you. So God, I first of all, just pray for my brothers and sisters, my church family here today, that these, these things that I bring up today were not intended to, to bring fear, but instead were intended to open our hearts and our minds to the fact that you are returning, Lord, and we need to be ready. We need to be ready personally, and we need to make sure that we have no unfinished business to take care of with regard to those who we love and those who we come into contact with daily, that we should have the opportunity to share your goodness with them. And Lord, I know that if we make this a matter of prayer, you will open those doors and it will happen. So Father, for every saved person in this place, I ask that you would generate within us a desire to see the lost one. But it wouldn't just be a desire, but we would put legs and hands and feet to that desire and we would do what you've called us to do. And that would be to lead other people to Christ. Lord, we understand we can't save anyone. We don't do the saving, you do. We just bring them into your direction and you do the rest. Let us always remember that. And God, for those who are here today and who are watching online, who do not have a relationship with you yet, I pray that they would have the courage to pray a simple prayer of belief and confession that Jesus is the Son of God, that it is his shed blood that atones for our sin. They will ask you for forgiveness of their sin to be the Lord of their life. And then, Lord, I pray that you'll help us as a church to come alongside of them and to help disciple them in their Christian faith so that they can learn more about the Word of God, they can learn more about what it means to live a life serving the Lord, and they can learn more about what happens when all of this is said and done and the future that we have in the presence of Almighty God in heaven. What an incredible promise that we have. 
So Lord, as we leave here today, I pray that your spirit would go with us, guiding and directing the places that we go, the things that we do, the conversations that we have. Lord, let them be conversations that build people up and not tear them down. Let them be the kind of conversations that would open up doors for us to share your goodness with others. Pray, Lord, that you would allow us to be bright lights in a very dark world, especially in the darkest places. And Father, I pray that those who are lost would see that light shining through us and that they will want to know what it is that we have that is so different than what they're experiencing in this life. And God, the rest will take care of itself. Empower us, Holy Spirit, to do the things you've asked us and called us to do and that we will do it regularly and we will do it well. We can't help but do it well because as your scriptures say, you will give us the words to say. And so God, as we depart our separate ways today, I ask that you would keep us safe, keep us safe from COVID, from any other sicknesses and diseases and illnesses that might come our way. I pray that you will protect us from accidents that might cause harm to us until we can gather together again and worship you as a family in spirit and in truth. And again, Father, I just pray that we'll be bright lights to everyone who we encounter. We thank you for this time together. I thank you for your Holy Spirit who is evident in this place and in our hearts. Thank you for, for the peace that you can only bring us that we can't get from anywhere else or anyone else. Thank you for that, Lord. We ask all of these things that I just prayed about in the precious and holy name of your son, Jesus. Amen and amen. Thank you for being here. God bless you. We'll see you next week.